So here we are, Ephesians chapter 6, and we are getting to the last piece of armor. And so I, I have things in the bulletin that you can fill out. You can fill in the blank. You can write little side notes. Uh, but starting with this idea, what, what is the armor of God? Simply put, it's divine resources that God gives to allow you to live victoriously in spiritual battles. And when he, Paul's going to talk to the church in Ephesus, he's going to tell them, stand firm. Hold your ground. And the good news is, like Pastor Chuck has said, and then I learned that he actually wasn't the first one to say it. Tony Evans says it too. Uh, we don't fight for victory. We fight from, wake up. I know you want to go to the lake, but wake up. We fight from victory, that we already have this victory. We hold our ground. Jesus has already won. Jesus has already been victorious, legally. But he wants us to experience it legally in the spiritual realm. He wants us to experience it literally. So there's some things that have to happen. He doesn't want you to try to create victory. He has already crafted the victory. There's a Tony Evans line for you right there. And my logo software that's just been updated by Pastor Greg Fred, um, I got to get all of Tony Evans' sermons from like 1970-something and on, and I got to read all the commentaries regarding this idea of spiritual warfare. And so there was this line in the commentary, he doesn't want us to create the victory, he has already crafted the victory. So we stand firm, that's a war cry. We don't fight for it, we fight from it. And then we need the white, right wardrobe. So here it is. Last week we're going to read it. It's Ephesians 6.10. You can't put it on your license plate. It's already taken. But here it is. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Armor up that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And then having done all, stand firm. Get your feet rooted because there's a battle and it's not for the faint of heart. And then here's the specifics of the armor. Week one, put on the belt of truth. Week two, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Week three, and as shoes on your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And in all circumstances, week four, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Week five, take up the helmet of salvation. And then here we are today, the last verse, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So here we go. First thing, take up the sword. And here's what I learned. There's a few things that I learned that I'm going to pass on to you, and hopefully it's meaningful. But what we've been saying is the first three is you always have them on you. You always wear the belt of truth. You never take it off. The last three are things that you need to take up. And the way that it translates in the Greek is it's kind of like prescribed as needed. So there are going to be times when you're in the battle that it gets so thick that you have to do some things or you're going to get hit. And this last piece of armor is the offensive weapon. And you take it up as needed because the enemy's coming after you. Everything else is designed to hold you steady for the attack, and now you have a weapon. And in the Greek, there are two types of swords to be addressed. 
One, which we would commonly think is the primary use of this text, which it's not. And then the second one, the first one is the long sword. It's, you know, you watch Braveheart or you watch Gladiator. You see them bum rush into battle. They break the, the defense. They break the walls and the shields. And then they come at you with these swords that are incredibly heavy. And although those are effective tactic, tactic in primitive war, that is not what Paul is talking about. How many of you thought that when you think of the sword of the spirit, you think of this, you know, knight's sword that weighs however much and is four or five feet long. That's not what he's talking about. The Greek word here is dagger. And so take up the dagger, the word of God, the dagger of the spirit. It would have been about 12 to 18 inches. I couldn't find a dagger. I, you know, I know this is shocking. I don't have one. I don't carry a dagger around, but I did go to the tool room. And I found a prison shank known as a screwdriver, right? So it kind, of, it kind of would have looked more like this. Well, why would you bring that on stage? I don't know. I needed a prop. It's, you know, it's a holiday weekend. I, I don't have the resources that some of you have, and no one brought me a dagger. So I, I brought up this screwdriver, uh, but think of it like a dagger. Don't think too long, but think about it. This would have been more realistic as to what Paul was talking about when he says, take up your sword. And so the difference between a dagger and a sword is it's obvious. So first of all, a dagger would have been needle sharp. And this doesn't fit the bill, but you can imagine. And it wouldn't have been for something that was far away. It would have been for fighting that was up close and personal, in your face, hand-to-hand combat, needle sharp. You guys seen the movie Gladiator? They have the long sword. Do you remember the bad guy, Joaquin Phoenix, one of the best actors of all time? Here's why. He can make you laugh. He can make you love him, and then most effectively, he can make you absolutely hate him. How many of you watched that movie? You're like, I hate the bad guy in The Gladiator. That's because he's a good actor. But what does he do before they get into that battle scene where then they both end up dying? Well, he goes up to The Gladiator before the uh, fight ever starts. He takes the dagger out, and he, and he takes care of business before it starts, and he, and he bleeds them out while he's on the battlefield, and he just stabs them. And the point is this, it's up close and personal. When someone takes you out with a dagger, you can see the, the rubble on their face and the last time they shaved. You can smell what they had for breakfast. You can look in their eye, and you can get to know them on a more intimate and personal level. And so when we are fighting against the attacks and the schemes of the enemy, it's not from far off. That's the point. It is up close and personal in your life. It is up close and personal in my life. And so we take out the sword of the Spirit and we use it to fight offensively against the schemes of the enemy. And they're not far from us. These problems that exist in the spiritual realm don't exist from a distance. They exist up close and personal. And so we fight with a dagger. Another thing that we need to realize is this, and I put this in the bulletin because I wanted us to all walk in this together. There's a reason that we lose these spiritual battles. And when we're fighting against the schemes and the attacks of the one who is against us, there's a reason that we lose. And the reason that we lose is we try to fight them, but we try to fight them with our own reason, with our own logic, with our own power. And that's just not the recipe for success when we're fighting. When we're fighting against the schemes of the enemy, we are fighting with his power, not our own man-made methodologies. And so 
however you walk into this place with, and, and here's the big lie from culture around us, that somehow we can use reason and logic and emotion to combat everything that's taking place around us. We can even try to use religion to somehow hold us up when really the, the only thing that we have is sitting hopefully right under your chair. It's the word of God. If you do not have the word of God, then you have nothing. Your opinions just don't matter. And so here, more importantly, hear me say this. My opinions don't matter. If I come up here and I don't use the word of God to reference my points, and I just have you know, empty philosophies that I bring before you, even if they're motivational, even if, you know, even if you can look at me and go, well, that guy must know what he's talking about. He's up front and he's talking to a group of people. No, all of my own wisdom that's earthly, has a cap to it. And so the reason that we lose the battles is because we don't use our own weapons instead of God's dagger. And when we really start facing those challenging times in life, when the kids start rebelling, when culture starts pushing back, if all we have is reason, if all we have is emotion, if all we have even is our religion to try to hold us up, it will not work. We have to have a dagger that's sharp. We have to know God's word. And has there been any more important time in history, in modern history, where we can look at this reality and go, yeah, that's that's just the way it is. Without God's word, we are cooked. It's not a weapon, it is the weapon. And so we play offense. And so as we move to this next point, I just want to bring something to light. And maybe you can relate to this because this has been your story. When you think about the word of God, how do you think about it? So when you think about why you're supposed to read it, uh, probably the most common things you'll hear, and they're all true, so it's not about true or not true, but maybe just fresh perspective. When, when you think about the Word of God, do you think about it as something that's an actual offensive weapon that you fight with? Because when I think about the Word of God, here, here's how I tend to perceive it. Uh, as a Christian, as a pastor, as someone who you know, has been following the Lord for a while, one of the reasons that I read the Bible, which is a good reason, is I read it out of obedience. You know, you, you hear that. Well, if I'm going to be a Christian, then I need to obey what God says. I need to feast on the Word of God. So that's true for sure. Or, you know, another reason I read it is I want to know more. If I'm going to worship Jesus, I need to know about Jesus. That's obviously a good reason. Both of those things are true, but what I don't think about is this. I need to know the word of God because I need to read it out of obedience. I need to know the word of God so that I can gain knowledge of the one that I'm worshiping. But what I spend little time on, and probably it's because I grew up a good Presbyterian and Presbyterians just want to know stuff, right? Uh, But what I don't focus on is I want to play offense with the word of God and I'm going to know it, I'm going to recite it, and I am going to proclaim it because when I proclaim it, I play offense. And when I proclaim it, That's where the power lies. How many of you can just concede? I don't quite think about it in those terms enough. That when the enemy is attacking me, when the enemy is attacking my marriage, when the enemy is attacking in the workplace, when the enemy is attacking all around the peripheral and my children with a 4% biblical worldview that are now graduating from high school and going off into their 20s and getting into their own marriages and having their own children, and leaving their own legacy. When I look at everything that the enemy has done to tear down everything around me, I look at the Bible as something that I have to do to know more about God. I have to read it, but I don't exactly look at it through the lens of maybe a more charismatic approach, which would be it has real life implication of power in my life. It's a sword that puts me on the offensive, and when I proclaim it, things change. 
When I speak the word of God, which is what we're going to get to in just a second, I believe in faith that things happen. Because it's sharper than a double-edged sword. And when I proclaim it, I stab the devil in the heart. Because he has an objective and God has an objective. He's the lie teller. God is the truth teller. And I'm going to know the word of God so that I can proclaim the word of God and I can see things change in my life. So how are we supposed to understand this sword? Here's why I said all of that. Because again, if you get to the root meaning of the words, all of a sudden now they hold a higher weight to them. How is the sword to be used? That's the second question posed in your notes. Well, if the sword is the word of God then what is the appropriate translation of the Greek word? Well, the first Greek word for the word of God would be grapha, G-R-A-P-H-A-I. This is the writings. When the the word of God talks about the Bible or the, the, the writings of the scripture, the 66 books that have been canonized, it's the grapha. It's, it's kind of like, and here, here's the problem with that, that people, religious people specifically, will, will see the importance of having a physical book, but it's kind of like in culture around us when it's religion and it doesn't have power to it, it kind of then becomes like a lucky rabbit's foot. That's the grapha. And you go to court and you put your hand on it and you swear on it. It's something that you have in your house, and I think the average American has a cluster of Bibles in the house, but there's been no time in modern history where we've read them less. And so the grapha is the writings of Scripture. Knowing the word, right? The logos, which is actually a sophomore that all the, or software that all the pastors use, the logos in the Greek is not just having the word, and that's, that's something that if you don't have one, you can take one. We want you to have a Bible. You can take it from under your seat. We want kids in our church to know it. Uh, we want them to know how to read the Bible. But the second phrasing for uh, what the sword could represent in the Greek is logos. And so the difference between The grapha is just the physical idea of having the book. The logos is taking those things, reading them, and then understanding the message behind them. The logos is this, how the content has been clarified. The logos is powerful because it's God talking. It's the message given from the grapha. But what's interesting about this is that when Paul, again, is talking, the way that the Greek translates, this is not what he's talking about. He's not talking about the physical word, the grapha. He is not talking about understanding the word, the logos. What he's talking about in verse 17 is the rhema. The rhema is this. It's speaking the word. And so there's knowing the word, understanding the word, and speaking the word. It's the utterance, words spoken or declared, declaration of the logos that you get from the grapha. So so the idea, maybe here's a better way of explaining it. The idea is this. You you can own a Bible factory and you cannot have a sword. Are you tracking? You can have a a thousand Bibles at your fingertips. and, And there's never been a greater time in history where we've had more knowledge at our fingertips. We have more commentaries for the Logos We have more education on YouTube than people in previous generations have gotten their doctorate. You can know whatever you want to know. If you you were just inquisitive, you can know whatever you want to know. So the book gives you a message, but the rhema plunges the the sword into the enemy and it draws the blood. And when the enemy is railing against you, you have this physical weapon. 
And the reason that we don't see the victory is because we are stuck on the fact that we are supposed to know the Bible, even know it great, like religious people. Some of you have been in church 50, 60 years. You can tell me things about the Bible that I don't know. You can start repeating all those stories that you've heard or you've taught to kids in Sunday school programs all your life. And so you can know the word, you can understand the word, but you don't apply the word and you don't speak the word and you don't declare it to be true over the attacks of the enemy in your life and you don't have the victory. I need something. Nod your head if you are tracking with what I'm saying. Does that make sense? The reason I bring it up and ask you if it makes sense is because I haven't thought about it enough as a pastor. And then I'm replaying these times in my life where the enemy is just full throttle coming at me. And I'm going, how many times have I actually applied this truth to my own life? The attack of the enemy requires the rhema. Here's what's so beautiful about God's sword. Hebrews 4.12, if you can quickly turn your Bibles there, if you've been in church and you you are a part of that Logos crowd, you've already heard it, but here it is, Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is alive, it's living and active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's a dagger that's needle sharp, it pierces to the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and the marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, it slices the invisible realm. It puts us on the offensive. All of these things, we have a shield, we have a belt, we have shoes, we have a breastplate. All these things are to play defense. But everyone knows who's been an athlete, you have to play defense, but there's a time to shoot the ball, and the ball needs to go in the hoop. And you have this offensive attack mode where you are saying, you know, I believe the word of God, and I'm declaring the word of God to be true in my life. I'm more than a conqueror in Christ. He who the Son has set free is free indeed. But I'm declaring these things to be true. And here's the third part of the message. There is a way that the enemy attacks as we close out this sermon series. There is a way that he attacks. There are things that he does not want you to know. And he knows that when you go on the offensive, he's cooked. When he go on the offensive... He has to flee. And it's not you. It's not your own power because all of your empty philosophies have little weight to them. It's God's word standing over you. And when you start declaring it, you start operating in it. He knows that he has to flee. And he does that in scripture. But the devil doesn't want you to know some things about his methodology because if you know things about his methodology, then you have him. And one of the things he doesn't want you to know is how he even operates. He's not just a liar. We've been saying this week after week. He's the father of lies. His DNA, in essence, is lying. He doesn't know how to tell the truth. He, he laces everything in half-truths. He would love for you to perceive him like the character on the cartoons that you've grown up seeing with an angel on one shoulder and then a little man in a red jumpsuit or like a Saturday Night Live character from the 80s. Was it John Lovitz who did that in a pitchfork? He would love for you to perceive him that way because then his job would be much easier. But that's not how he works. He is deceptive to the core. Verse 11, guard yourself against the deceptive strategies of Satan and stand firm against his schemes. He's a magician. He operates by sleight of hand. He wants you to see this thing over here so that he can operate in this realm. He wants you to believe lies of what's going to fulfill you in your life and then operate on a whole different level to destroy you. And so here's what he knows is the father of lies with an intent to steal, to kill, to destroy. 
He can't do anything to you unless you move from the protective covering of God that God has over you. And so what he's trying to do is pull you away from the truth of Scripture, operating in the righteousness that is clothed on you by the power of the Holy Spirit, walking in the truth that God has given you, because when he has you, he has to have you, to, he has to relocate you to have you, because when you're operating in the power of the Holy Spirit, he can't touch you. And so what we said week one is what I want to bring to light again as we close and now and here in just a few minutes. That if he only has you, if you're operating outside of the giftings and the power of the Holy Spirit, outside of the protection of the armor that God has placed on you, then what he's going to try to do is relocate you. And once he relocates you, once he gets you to start believing lies, once he starts getting you to trust in the next best thing or the next empty philosophy of the day of age that you're living in, now he can absolutely and utterly destroy you. And so what we said week one is the devil has no power over you. Look at me when I tell you this, that you don't choose to give him if you're a Christian. I'm going to say that one more time because I want you to remember that. Last week of the series is the things I want you to remember. The devil has no power over you. I should hear some pins clicking. I hear them right now. The devil has no power over you unless you choose to give him power by operating outside of the boundaries that God has given. When the armor is on, you're protected. When the armor is off, all hell can break loose. He knows that he's already lost. He wants to create as much destruction as possible. And here's how he does it. Here's specifically how the enemy attacks. You have the sword. He has his own offense. And here's what he does. Number one, he creates confusion. This is what we see in Scripture. He pushes back. He wants to get you outside of God's protection. He wants the armor to be off. And so what he does specifically regarding the word of God is he will say things. He said it to Jesus. He says it to Adam and Eve in the garden. Did God really say the devil's core strategy? He wants to create confusion. When Adam and Eve fell in the garden, Satan attacked what God said because what God said is so critical to them operating in the way that God designed them. And so the enemy is going to create confusion, and how many of us can concede that's happening all around us? People don't know what to believe. People do not know what to believe. They are drinking the next quick drink of Kool-Aid that's destroying their soul. And so he'll create confusion. Here's another thing he'll do. He'll create doubt. I don't know what to believe. And so now there are these philosophies around me. There's these people that, that claim Christianity is a covering over their life, and they've abandoned the word of God as true. And so he creates confusion, he creates doubt. Here's an easy way to know if you're on the right track when it comes to what's true and interpreting the word of God. This is something I hold on to. Someone told me this a long time ago when I was a youth pastor. They just said this, this isn't always foolproof, but this is a pretty good methodology. If you were to go to a deserted island and you didn't have any empty philosophies around you telling you how to understand the Bible, and you just read it as plain as possible on a deserted island, what would be the thing that you'd walk away from? Believing. How would you understand Jesus? What would his attributes be? What would the truth of scripture tell you about how you're saved and and what it looks like to follow him? We make it so complicated. Look at me when I tell you this. We make it so complicated in 2023, but if you just have the Bible and tune out those things on social media all around you and media all around you, it's not as complicated as we make it. 
that Jesus is the only way to heaven, that he lived the perfect life, that he died the death that we should have died, that he rose again so that we can have life, that his morality is true, that his plan for your marriage is true, that his plan for your sexuality is true, that his plan for your children and how they should live a godly life is true, that his plan for the next generation to rise up and follow Jesus passionately is true. It's not that complicated, and we make it so complicated because we want to do what we want to do. And so he tries to create doubt. He tries to create confusion. You see him do this in the wilderness with Jesus. And if he's going to attack Jesus with trying to get Jesus to doubt, then you can rest assured he's going to try to attack you because you're probably not going to be as effective at fighting off the plans and schemes of the devil as Jesus Christ himself was. And he goes after Jesus with the same empty philosophies. He says with his doubtful uh, tactics. He says, when Jesus is in the wilderness and Jesus is starving because he's been fasting, he says, since you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus responds. He doesn't get into a long conversation with Satan. He just responds with the word of God. He tells him, it is written. It is written. He does this three different times. And then finally what happens when the enemy knows that the enemy is done for? The enemy just flees. He tries to get him to test God, and then Jesus just responds, it is written, you should not put your Lord God to the test. And what Jesus does in that moment is he puts on display what we're talking about this morning. He, He has God's word. He is God. He's the son of God. He understands the word because he is the author of the word. But even for Jesus, he puts this template on display with the rhema. He has the word, he understands the word, and then he says, it is written. And what happens when he says that? The enemy packs up and he flees. No confusion, no doubt, just truth proclaimed. Three strikes and the devil's out. How much peace can we get? This is kind of like a question that I'm posing to you. I didn't plan on even asking it. But how much peace, if you start reflecting on your life when your life has been chaotic versus when your life has been peaceful, how much peace does it, does it bring to your soul to feast on God's word in the midst of chaos and to know it and then just to tell yourself the truth? Therapeutically, that's one of the key tactics you can use to calm your anxiety, to talk to yourself and tell yourself the truth. You're not just telling the enemy the truth. You're telling yourself the truth, and you're pushing back on the lies. And when you do that, all of a sudden, your anxiety, when your mind is racing, and it's like a ping-pong ball in your head, and a hamster wheel spinning, and you can't seem to get any footing, sure footing in your life, all of a sudden, you just start telling yourself the truth. Here are the lies that I'm telling myself through my sinful nature. Here are the lies that the enemy is attacking with. And I'm just committed to this. I don't have to know everything, but I'm going to know what God says on a matter. And when I know what God says on a matter, here's what's going to happen in your life. Your anxiety levels are going to go down, I promise you. Your anxiety levels will go down. Because God's word is true and the devil flees. Here's another way. This is the byproduct. I want to make sure I bring this up before I close. The byproduct of all this is when you start allowing Satan to confuse you, and when you start allowing Satan to bring doubt and plant seeds of doubt in your mind, you're going to wrestle with all these things, and then the next generation's going to rise up, and here's what's happening all around us. The last season of, of Christendom, of Christianity and the church, last season was all of a sudden people started infiltrating the church and bringing doubt and confusion, and does God really say this, and is this how this should be interpreted? Now the next generation's rising up, and they're just ignorant. 
They're, they're not splitting theological hairs. They just don't care because they have been given an empty form of religion that has no weight to it. And they, they are not repeating the cycle. And so then the next generation rises up and Satan has us now because now it's not about fighting back or pushing back on every empty philosophy. Now people are just abandoning the local church. It's not, does God really say this and should I really believe that? It's, I am just apathetic. I don't care. I think in the last 15 years, they've seen a 15% drop in people that are, are saying that they affiliate with even a Christian worldview at all. It goes from people combating things to people not caring about things, people not even knowing what they believe or caring what they believe because the last generation showed them something that was empty. And the enemy runs wild. And so as we, as we close this time out, what do we do? Well, we put on our armor. Here, here's the last thought, fighting spiritual battles. I just thought I'd close with some Chuck Hogel. If you're new to church, that's our missions pastor. and He just thinks he knows everything, but... Uh, He's like one of my, he's one of my very best friends. And, uh, and what he said that Tony Evans said that some other baby boomer probably coined is we don't fight for victory, we fight from victory. And so when we fight these spiritual battles, I, I want to close with the 18th verse. We've been covering 10 through 17. I want to bring to light verse 18. That there are six pieces of armor. And then Paul says this. He says, take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But check this out. He says, praying, underline that in your Bibles, write that on your hands, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And so we put on this armor and then we go to the Lord and we tell him what his word says as if he doesn't know, but we're just claiming it on our lives to be true in our lives no matter what we're going through because we know that the enemy isn't content with simply taking us out. He wants our family. He wants our influence. He wants our legacy. He wants that circle around us and he knows if we're not armored up and we're not going before the Lord, then he has us. And the reason that we have the armor is to protect and fight. Week one, it's like football. Right? You have to take a hit. That's the five pieces of armor. And you have to give a hit. But if you think you can go to a football game without your helmet on and without all your pads and your gear, you are absolutely delusional and you are going to pay the price. And so I just want to close this thing out by telling you some things that are happening in the community around you of believers. In this past month, the pastors in town as a part of the pastors network have felt a massive burden to go to the Lord in prayer. Because what we're seeing is, is the same thing that you're seeing, and it, it's sad. People with empty philosophies just driving the bus, set, setting in place things that we never thought we would have seen 15, 20 years ago when we started New Life. Never. And the response has been multifaceted. The response has been pastors getting together in a meeting around a table at uh, First United Methodist. I know they have a new name, Aldersgate. And uh, like all of the evangelical pastors in town, we're just going to the Lord and praying. We met last week. We're saying, what are we going to do? The times are dark. And so this Thursday, we're going to go to the roof at 12 o'clock, have lunch. And there's something spiritual about roofs. Remember when we were on the roof? And I guess there was a time at uh, First United when all the pastors came together back in the day and uh, they prayed on the roof and it was really powerful. And so Derek over there and Mike said, let's get on the roof and pray. Who wants in? And, 
And if, if, if you don't go, then you're just like not a good pastor. So we all said, well, we're going to do this. And I'm actually coming back uh, in the middle of vacation to drive back from the prestigious vacation spot of here on South Dakota to pray Thursday. And then I'm going back again, back to my vacation hotspot of Huron because everything good happens in Huron. That's, that's the mecca of, of vacations in South Dakota. But, but I'm coming back early and we're going to pray on the roof because we believe something, that there's an attack from the enemy that's real and that prayer changes things. Amen? There's an attack from the enemy that's real and that prayer changes things. And so we're all coming together. Everyone who's leaning in on the word of God to be true. And then Saturday at 1 p.m., Whoever wants to come, the doors, I'm going to be back on vacation, but Pastor Chuck's going to open the doors. This is his idea. So whoever wants to come to the church Saturday and just pray against the attacks of the enemy in our community, we're going to come together in prayer. And then on social media in the bulletin in the month of June 4th, 11th, 18th, 25th, there's going to be prayer themes that are posted so that all of us can come together and we can be praying against the attacks of the enemy that are on us, that are on our children, that are on our church, that are on our community. Because... We armor up and believe that prayer changes things. And we take our offensive weapon and we fight from a position of speaking the authority of Scripture within our prayer life. And we do so humbly. Praise team, get ready. I'm about done. We do so humbly. There is something that is going on that is so ironic, but I guess it's pretty predictable at the heart of the language all around us, specifically in the month of June. Are you tracking? Specifically in the month of June, what is the primary language that's being used to teach us new empty philosophies that actually aren't so new? Pride, 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 pride. Here's what we're going to do. I know it's pride month. We're going to come together and we're just going to pray humbly and bring ourselves before the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we serve a Savior that is so humble. It is dangerous to use pride as a slogan for anything because pride comes before something. It comes before the fall. We serve a Savior who at the very heart of the gospel is, is humility, is humble. Jesus humbled himself by coming to earth. Jesus humbled himself by being subject to human authority, Jesus humbled himself by being placed on a cross. And so our humble response to everything going on around us is, Jesus, we believe in our hearts that your word is the only word, that your truth is the only truth, and that our perceived power and insight is what's causing so much destruction around us. And, and here's my humble response for all of us and this is theological, that if we could fix things and if we were the answer and if we can somehow find a utopian state where we can all just be nicer to each other, then I think this is a fair statement. Look at me when I tell you this. I'm going to close in prayer. If we were the answer, if man and woman was the answer for all of life's problems, we would have already fixed it by now. We would have already been able to do it and the world is getting crazier by the minute because the enemy is real and our flesh has desires. And so in a world around us that is screaming through rooftops pride, we want to come together as the body of Christ and say, we serve a humble Savior who died on a cross for my sin because just like everyone around me who's saying stuff that seems insane, I also am a sinner. 
I'm no better than anyone else that I'm seeing around me. The only difference is Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning in my life. Without him, I am nothing. I'm nothing. And we put on the armor and we speak the rhema and we proclaim it in prayer to our Savior, Jesus Christ, who holds the keys to the kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for being a source of truth that stands outside of us. Holy Spirit, we thank you for being the source of truth that lives inside of us. Help us to come before you at the end of this series just armored up, armored up to know your word, to speak your truth, to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. If there's anyone that doesn't know you as Savior, Jesus, I pray that right now that you would grab their heart, that you would stir their affections, that they would believe on the work of the cross. They believe that you rose again to save them from their sins and give them a place in eternity with you, that they don't have to go to hell, that they can be made right by, uh, by you to God and that they can go to heaven forever with you. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen.